Matthew 7, verse 13 to 27. The football club that Brittany and I and some friends like to watch and support, football is soccer, by the way, um, in England, um, Brentford have been on a three-game winning streak. And that feels good because they were losing a few before that. Winning feels good. Last week, the Texas Rangers won the World Series. Yeah, Congratulations, they Tyler. Yeah, they, <laughs> um, they won the World Series. And that feels good as a fan. As an Angel fan, I've suffered through many bad seasons. But in 2002, that felt good. We like to win. And yeah, it's, yeah, it feels good. Um, but as a church, as the church of Christ, the church also wants to win. And there's an attitude that we carry in which we want to win the world. And because we know the salvation we have and we want to see people won over for Christ. However, we need to be careful that in our desire to win the world, we don't use, we don't play by the game that the world plays. It can be all too easy for us to feel the thrill of winning that we experience in the world and then to transfer those tactics into the church to feel the same thrill of winning the world for Jesus. As you will see, the Sermon on the Mount is very backward from the way the world talks about winning. In fact, if you follow the Sermon on the Mount to a T, you will be a loser. There, there, it's incompatible for someone to obey the teachings of Jesus as described here and to be a winner in the world. So when we say that we want to win the world, we want to make sure we do this the way Jesus has taught us to win the world and not the way that the world has taught us to win the world. And the way that I best conceive this, this is just what keeps coming to me in thinking upon this passage, is that when we want to win, typically what we want is we want to feel wow, we want to feel impressed, and we want to see numbers that's what we mean by win. And sometimes the church can be tempted to wow the world, to impress the world, to show the numbers that we have generated. Um, and these sometimes, you know, there are places for this, but sometimes we get out of line and we put this display forward and forget that Christ never actually tells us to wow people impress people to prove our our fruit by numbers um for example when i talk about numbers um you know if you've been around christianity long enough you'll know that numbers are often thrown around as evidence of god's work um one church uh had an email about what they did over halloween and how how many bags of popcorn they served and how many um Kids came and all this to measure the blessing that happened in their event. Forgetting that actually maybe the fact that we are simply doing what God wants to do is the right blessing and the numbers aren't as important. Lest we get into this temptation of not enough are showing up to this so we ought to stop it. Or this is getting a lot of numbers so we ought to do this. So it's a bad way to drive the ship, if you will. Um, 
we can get in a temptation of trying to impress rather than trying to simply live the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus impressed some, but he highly disrupted others. And when he told us, blessed are the persecuted for they, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he means to teach us, as we looked at before, that if we're to follow his way, we're not always going to be loved. We're not always going to wow and impress people and gain lots of numbers. We want to stick with what he's taught us. And he gives us here in this uh, closing of the sermon, he gives us warnings for where is our drive to win the world coming from? So these are warnings to, to keep us focused on what he taught us. Because the way of Jesus does not always win the world. The way of Jesus does not always win the world. It'll win some, and it'll win those that need to be won, but it will not win the whole world. Crusader mentality there. So he's going to conclude the sermon with three warnings um, not to stray from what he's taught us. So here we go. Um, verse 13 of chapter 7. First of all, you'll notice that your Bible and my Bible, I think just about every translation puts chapter or verse 12 with verse 13, sort of in the same segment. Mine is all under the golden rule. Um, it's, it's not the best lead because Jesus concludes a thought with verse 12. Verse 13 is now his invitation, his call to action, his warnings that he closes with. There's three of them. We're going to see he's going to call us to one of two paths, one of two trees, and one of two foundations. That's how he closes the sermon. The, the threes, the triplets that he's been doing throughout the sermon. So verse 13, one of two paths. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He may not be speaking so much here about the broad way to hell and the narrow way to heaven, as much as he's referring and inviting those who have heard the sermon to the broad way of walking the Christian life and the narrow way of walking the Christian life. And there's some indications here in the text that he's leaning this way because you'll notice he said that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Wide is the same word that's used two other times in, in its verbal forms change, but it's the same word used in Matthew 6 verse 5 and Matthew 23 verse 5. And to show you what I mean, you can look at 6 5 because it's just right next door. Uh, in 6 5, we read this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, or they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the wide corners. It says street, but it's the same word of the broad way or the wide way. So he could be recalling that and, and focusing us on don't walk the way of the Pharisees and the hypocrites who love the broad way, which is a lot of people looking at them, noticing. So when, the, when they're standing there praying, everyone's wowed and impressed by the number of their prayers. 
and the, 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 the intensity of them. You'll remember that Jesus through this sermon has been calling us to a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't mean that we're supposed to do more works of righteousness than the Pharisees. So in other words, if they stand in the broad place of the street, you're to go to the Capitol Hill and pray. One up it. Or if they say two hours of prayers, you're supposed to say three. And if they pray 10 times a day, you're supposed to pray 22 times a day. That's not what he means by a greater righteousness. He means a righteousness that is more whole than their form of righteousness. They were externally righteous. Their righteousness was all aimed at winning people's attention and affection. He wants the Christian to have a whole person righteousness because he isn't just doing good things, but he's doing these things because this is who he is inside and out because Christ himself, his nature is growing into and becoming one with his own nature. That's what he's calling us to. So we saw um, in this sermon that we aren't going to take the broad winning way. We're taking the narrow loser way, the one that most people don't take. And the way he's done this is he showed us at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There begins the first of eight virtues, which he calls us to, which are not virtues praised by the world. Jesus is calling us to a narrow way, a way not that, not that it's squeezing and only a few people take it, though that's true too, but that it's narrow in the sense that it's going to make you smaller in humility, but larger in the life of God. Whereas the more religious type, want to be seen as great in the eyes of the world. And so Jesus invites us, though, at the beginning of the sermon, he invites us to the blessed life, which you might recall, this has been a while now, Macarius is the word blessed. And that refers not to, he's not saying, by Macarius, he's not saying, if you are poor in spirit, then you're blessed. If you are meek, then I'll bless you. If you are peacemaker, then I'll bless you. That's not what he's doing. It's not a formula. Macarius is a word that's used to describe states of blessedness so that when you are poor in spirit, that is the blessed life. When you are mourning, that is the blessed life. So Jesus is inviting us to that Edenic thriving, or as many others have called it, the good life. The good life is not the way the world walks. The world wants its comforts and its possessions and its attention and its acclaim. Christ is saying the good life is actually in humility and mourning and meekness and righteousness. And this is, this is, so when he calls us to walk the narrow way, he's really summing up what he's taught the whole time. This is the blessed life. And then he calls us to, um, verse 17, five, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And by fulfilling them, he means that was an external righteousness, but now I'm going to give you righteousness within so that you can also be whole, not just in what you do on the outside, but who you are on the inside. That's when he then says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds 
that of the scribes and Pharisees will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then to give us examples of this greater righteousness entering into us, he gives us six examples. The first is in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say unto you, or it should be, and I say unto you. So he affirms the law of God, but then he says, that's external, don't murder. The hypocrites are really good at not murdering. The religious are really good at not murdering, but they're not as good at having that peace and forgiveness and love in their heart, even for those who harm them. That's the greater righteousness. That want not just what we do. I didn't, I didn't tweet bomb them on the internet. Um, no, but that we inside are finding ways to find peace in that midst. He then gives us other examples like lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving our enemies, all culminating in 5 verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that word perfect we looked at is teleos. Teleos refers to wholeness. It's actually a play on hagios, which is the word holiness. You might remember this. Go back and listen to it. A lot of people really gave good feedback on that sermon, so it must be a good one. So you can go back and listen to that one. Um, but in short, um, he's, he's actually twisting what they were used to hearing, be hagios, holy, as God is hagios, holy. That's all over Leviticus. But Jesus twists it because he's actually calling them to greater than what the Pharisees were willing to say. We're holy. He's like, don't be holy like them. Be greater than. So he changes it from hagios to teleos. Be complete and whole as your heavenly father is complete and whole. So your righteousness must not just be external, but internal and external. It's about who we become, not what we do. And then he gives us the three examples of how to grow in this wholeness. How do we become whole like this? It seems impossible. It is. So God gives us grace to work alongside us as we do these things. The three are, we must give in 6 verse 2. We must pray in 6 verse 5. And we must fast in 6 verse 16. Giving our time, talents, and, uh, what was it? Time, talents, and treasures. Treasures. Yeah, thank you. I could remember money, but not the other T. When those acronyms don't help out. Um, Time, yeah, treasures and talents. Um, And we pray and we fast. These don't make you a winner. I think the activists within us, Find prayer hard because it feels like you're doing nothing. Fasting is like the most loser thing you can do when everyone else wants to find the finest restaurants and stuff their guts. And giving? Oh, I could keep all that and make a name for myself or get the things I want. But giving? It's a losing activity. The narrow road he's calling us to. Um, Then he came to the third and final segment of the main part of the sermon, when in 6 verse 19, all the way through 7, 12, he, he highlights the Father who provides for us. He provides for our resources, so don't worry. And then in chapter 7, he provides us love in our relationships, so don't judge and cut people off. And all of these were modeled on the Father who loves us so that we can live open-handed and without worry. Worry makes us like this, close up, and greed makes us close up. And unwillingness to love others makes us close up. But our Father teaches us to live as He lives generously toward us. So then He concludes this whole idea, this whole main part of the sermon. Remember He started in 
15 with, do not think that I come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. So have a whole person righteousness. He concludes it all in 7 verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is how you fulfill all of scripture. Be a whole righteous person simply doing to others what you have them do to you. We looked at that last week as the golden vision. Rule is not a good way to term that. It's not a golden rule. It's a golden vision for life. And so now Jesus is calling us to action and warning us, don't stray from my path that I've taught you in this sermon because it's hard and the world and even my church, he's cautioning us, may tell you to live otherwise, but choose the narrow way because it's the hypocrites that choose the broad look at me way. The, I told you 23 verse 5 is the other place that that word broad is used. Um, if you want to look at it, you can. But at 23 verse 5, he talks about how the Pharisees um, broaden their phylacteries. The phylacteries were the strips of leather that they, they held the Shema and other parts of the law in there. And they would strap them on their foreheads and wrists while they prayed. And the Pharisees would love to make theirs a little bit bigger. Because, you know, the bigger the Bible, the more holy the person, right? That was the mentality so that people would really notice. We're so de- we really don't want to forget it. My whole forehead is covered. Um, and so he says there that they would broaden the same word, their phylacteries, in order to be seen, yep, noticed by others. That's the mentality of winning the world. But Jesus has a different way for us to win the world. It's a quieter, more patient, but more wholesome way. Because we have to remember, if all we do is convert people to talk like us and think like us, all we've done is made a bunch of obnoxious religious people. But if people see Christ in us through a whole person way of living, then they become that. And that's what truly the kingdom of heaven is, as he says over and over in our sermon. So that's the two ways. You might notice, too, he's kind of playing on the two ways that Psalm 1 presents. The one who walks with the ungodly and the one who meditates on the word. Slowly like a tree bears fruit. Uh, Two ways is a common theme in scripture. And that leads us to the second invitation, the second warning. So choose one of two ways. Now be one of two trees. And this one's really a warning because he's not really actually calling us to be a tree. He's calling us to take note of what kind of tree the people around us are. Okay. So we're going to read now in verse 15. So beware. In verse 13, he told us to enter. Now he's telling us to beware in verse 15 of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So what does that mean? On the outside, they're righteous, but on the inside, they're ruled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You will recognize them by their fruits, the things they do and produce. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So the nature of the tree determines the nature of the fruit. So is this person, is his human nature um, 
communing with the flesh or is his human nature communing with the divine nature, with, with Christ? What his nature communes with will determine the fruit or the way that he lives. So you'll know what's going on inside by what's coming on or what's coming out from them. So in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. An implicit call for us to bear the fruits of divinity. The, the beatitudes is what those are. Um, but more directly, he's telling us to watch out for those who lead us. Watch out for those who lead us. Why do you follow the person that you follow? I know I'm totally putting myself on the hot seat right now. Um, is it because they lead you to themselves? Or is it because they lead you to Christ? And if you find yourself enamored with the person, you may not be following a good leader. But if you find through this person you're more enamored with Christ, that's a good safe bet. Um, it, you're not always going to recognize this immediately. Fruit isn't always just hanging there announcing that it's rotten. Sometimes when I take kids on the trail at Thousand Pines, they always want to pick the apples. It's their favorite thing to do. And I let them. Be like, like These kids have never seen a wild apple tree before. And every time they bite into one, sorry, I'm adding on here. This is not good for the time. But <laughs> every time they bite into one, they're like, dude, Billy, you need to try this. This is not like a store apple. And they're so right. It, nothing like a local wild apple. But anyways, um, but they'll always bring them to me. Like, does this one have worms? Does this one have worms? I got to examine it. Like, is there a hole in there? Is there worms? And But the th- trouble is sometimes they go in through the bottom where the little flower bud is at the bottom and you don't really notice the hole and you don't know until you eat the fruit and sometimes it can be totally rotted in the core. And that's when you just, you, I just tell them, you get take a bite and look before you swallow or chew, you know? Just take a bite and it looks good and keep going. Um, <laughs> but like fruit doesn't always hang there saying, rotten don't eat me sometimes you don't know till later and of course in his analogy fruit sometimes takes time to be born so just ask yourself like is this person leading me on the broad way or are they walking the broad winning way or are they walking the narrow way of christ um so it goes into verse 21 i know your bible wants you to think this is a new section but there's reason to think that this is connected So, um, verse 21, we're going to keep looking at it in the same vein. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, obedience is what you need. Mm -hmm. On that day, many will say to me. So, here I see he's saying the false prophets will say this. They will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? You see what they're doing? They're declaring the broad way. We wowed people. We impressed people. We had a number of works and a number of followers. And Christ saying, that's not what matters. What matters is the fruit the one who's doing the will of my father in heaven. And you know what? You may be living the way of Christ and never be recognized for that. But you know who sees you? The one who's looking at the heart sees. And this is the warning he's he's reminding us. Don't get caught up in the, wow, they're godly. You have no idea. You really don't know. 
You can't judge on the wow factor, the impressive factor, the number Mm -hmm. factor. Mm -hmm. So verse 23, then I declared, uh, going back to that scenario, like um, I didn't know you. And then, or, oh yeah, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things? And then verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there's a hint here that obedience is not the same thing as good, religious, righteous works. Works and obedience are different things. But we'll come back to that to think about at the end. Okay, and then now the third. So enter one of two ways. Beware of one of two trees. And now um, he's got two foundations for us. Which foundation are you going to build upon? One of the most well-known verses because all children learn how to sing. The wise man built his house upon the rock. (laughs) Yeah, and Addie's nodding. Cool. Uh, Everyone then, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Please notice, he does not say whoever hears these words and believes them. He's going back, like he said in verse 21, whoever does the will of my father, whoever does these words of mine, what words? Well, clearly, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a foundational text we've been studying, and we want to learn to be doers of this sermon. So whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words, now conversely, verse 26, it's contrast now. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house because all people, righteous and unrighteous, go through hard things in life. And it fell and great was the fall of it. So, doing Jesus' words does not necessarily make us win. It may not always wow people, impress people, and draw great numbers, but it does help us last. And it does help us live. Because we will go through things that will rock us quite a bit. We might lose power, and we might be eating out of soup, can, soup cans for a while, but the house is solid, right? We might go through another blizzard, but the house is solid. The rafter might crack, but the house is, the foundation is solid. Now, it is true that we will go through things like this through life, and the words of Jesus will help us through these things. But probably more to Jesus's point is he's speaking about the great day of judgment like he did in the last example, I will say to them in that day, I never knew you. Who's going to stand in the judgment? Like Psalm 1 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but will blow away like the chaff in the wind. They have no foundation. They're blown by the wind. They have no roots like that Psalm says, the tree rooted by the river. 
So they blow away. They get knocked over. But here, who will be the people that enter the kingdom of heaven? Who are those that are part of it? Well, we're going to find out what the foundation is that we built at that time. Because you can't always tell the home's foundation. I can't tell when I look at you externally what your foundation is. In fact, frankly, those who didn't take the time to build on a foundation have a lot more resource and time to make the aesthetics of their home look better than others. And there may be the house that looks more attractive, but you can't tell Jesus' warning what's the unseen foundation. The tree has unseen roots, but you'll know by its fruit. The house has unseen foundations. Don't judge it by its appearance. The foundation is what matters. So yeah, one house might wow, impress, and draw numbers. But the other one, it has life in it. It will last. This is what Jesus is, I would say, inviting us into slash warning us against. He wants to keep our focus on what he preached because what he said is serious. And it's sometimes going to be hard for us to take it seriously because the world doesn't take it seriously. We laugh at people that live the way Jesus has been teaching. So I think what Jesus wants us to do, what I can't escape at the end of the sermon is the clear call to obey his words. Both in um, verse 21, he who does the will of my father, and in this last, some scholars call it a parable, the parable of the house, he who does these words of mine. So again, the emphasis is not just believing the words, but doing them. But I get it, right? We, we close it here and we're like, wait, we can't park here. Because like, how do Jesus and Paul even eat from the same tree of life if Paul's like, no works at all, faith alone, and Jesus is saying, it's not just thinking good things about my words, but doing them. It's like, how are these two like from the same (laughs) kingdom? (laughs) And then um, how dare we put Paul or Jesus against one or the other? I mean, if you had to, right? Which one are you going to (laughs) choose? But don't we always want to quote Paul more when it comes to faith and works debate? Like we always, Jesus seems a lot about works and Paul's a lot about faith. So sometimes we like to preach Paul a lot more. So I get it. It's hard to park the bus here. Jesus demands our obedience. Um, So what do we do with that? I think one of the reasons, here's one thing to consider. God doesn't seek to win the world. He wants all to be saved. But do you notice how he brings salvation into history? Barring the miraculous he did in the Old Testament, it's in this advent of Christ that he actually operates very unimpressively. The incarnation to an unknown woman through a scandal, which we call the virgin conception, but to the eyes of those that see only the outside and not what's going on, see scandal and sin. And then in his birth as a human, the creator of the world comes to us as a baby. He's visited by shepherds, the most untrusted lot in the Jewish world of the time. 
And then he conducts his ministry in a very weird way. As he, as he heals people, he tells them very directly, don't spread this around. When he begins to get notoriety in a town, he moves on to the other town or goes off into the wilderness to not be found. You may remember he spends the whole night healing the village of Capernaum. And in the morning, the disciples are like, where is he? There's more people wanting to be wowed and he's gone. Our business plan, our dreams of making it big in the, in the Jewish world are collapsing. So they go out and find Jesus praying in the wilderness. Like, don't you know everyone's looking for you? And Jesus just casually like, yeah, that's why we're going to go to other villages that need to hear this too. What they expected was he would set up shop and grow power and influence. Jesus would rather move from town to town and drop the seeds of the kingdom and let them sprout behind him as he keeps going. Um, so we see he, he behaves strangely in his ministry. And then the means of salvation is he takes up the infamy of a cross, a form of execution for a criminal, and one reserved, because it was so dreadful, reserved only for those who are not Roman citizens. Roman criminals were beheaded. Non-Roman criminals were crucified as a public display of humiliation and state-sponsored terrorism to warn everybody, if you even think about behaving like this, you will be next. And then when he's raised from the... His battle happens not in the visible realm, but against death and the devil in a realm we cannot see. That's where his victory lies. And then he comes quietly out of the grave. No trumpets blaring, no entourage of greet the king who's coming to Jerusalem, but rather women are the first witnesses of his triumph over death. And then the 12 who are hesitant to believe, and then the 12 spread it. It's a very slow and quiet, hey, death is conquered. Get the word out by being people who are not overcome by death. We could go on with the examples, like the church. How does, who does Jesus call to make the church? But as Paul says, the scum of, in my wording, the scum of the earth. He uses, he uses the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the strong. Um, in, in, in the way we look at Luke, he's calling the least, the last, and the lost to be the church. This is not the way to win, wow, and impress and draw numbers. This is the way, though, rather to shift things in a real lasting way. So God didn't seek to win the world, so why do we? I propose to you it's because we forget our Father who has already given us everything we need. When we don't need to win our Father, then we won't need to win the attention of others. You don't have to win your Father. He's made this clear throughout the sermon. He already loves you. His arms are ready to embrace you. So come in prayer and meet that embrace and intertwine your arms and your natures together. 
here, Father, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who loves you. And he's just eager to pour out his goodness and his generosity and his benevolence. But it's when we forget that our Father is like this, that we don't have to do these impressive pharisaical works to get his attention, but he already has it. Jesus told us to pray as one who is seen by him and heard by him and known by him. When we don't have to win his love, his affection, then we won't have to win the love and the affection of the world because we already have it where it matters. But when we forget this, we try to wow and impress and draw the numbers. So because we don't have to win our father, we can obey our father, which means we don't have to work to win his love. We obey because we are loved. So here's how works and obedience look. In this model with the Father, it's very different. Works are this thing we do outside of relationship with the Father, but obedience is within the relationship of the Father. So works are trying to gain the Father's attention, but obedience is what we do to grow in the Father's love. We already have his love, but we want to grow in this love, so we obey him. Works are promotion-oriented. I want to be noticed by others, and I want to be noticed by God, and I want to acquire something. But obedience is relationship-oriented. I want closeness with my father, so I want to do what he tells me to do to be close to him. Works are self-empowered. Works are about what I do, and therefore I get credit and glory for what I do. But obedience is what the Eastern Church refers to as synergism, uh, synergy. It's that God's grace is an energy that works alongside my obedience, my energy. And so that he brings it to us, we respond by doing what he tells us to do, and then that grace is activated to grow us into something more than we can make ourselves. That's what obedience is for. Works try to cover past sins. Works are an orientation of, ah, I am in debt or I'm in trouble with God, so we got to make up for this. I sinned here, so I'm going to do these good things here. But obedience is rather about protecting ourselves against future sins. Obedience is about I have sinned in the past and my father forgives that, but I don't want to turn away from him anymore. So I'm going to do what he tells me to do so that I keep walking this narrow path and grow his fruits and live in his house forever. That's the difference between works and obedience. We have a father who loves us. Father is used more times in the Sermon on the Mount than anywhere else in the rest of the Bible put together. It's a clear theme that Jesus wants us to relate to God as Father through him. So, brothers and sisters, we are not working to gain salvation. That's not what the, though the Sermon on the Mount has a lot to do with obeying and doing stuff, it's not about working to gain salvation. It's about obeying to become children of God. It's that greater whole person righteousness, an invitation to the blessed, the Macarius, Edenic, good life. That's the kingdom of heaven. 
And when we obey Jesus, then we find, eh, winning's one thing. That, that doesn't matter anymore. Because what, what game did you win? No one's going to remember the Texas Rangers won the World Series even in two or five years unless you're a baseball nut. Sorry, Tyler. Glory short. Um, someone's going to knock them off next year, right? Um, man, the Brentford wins lately. They're playing Liverpool next week, so it could end real quick. <laughs> if you don't know anything, that's, never mind. It's a really good team. Um, like, right? What, why, why seek to win anyways? It matters what game we win. And with the Father, it's not a game, it's a relationship. We don't win. What we do is we live. The narrow way, it said, leads to life. We live and we last. That's what it looks like to be in God's care. We live real life and we don't lose it because we last. So, obedience in Jesus' way is how this life and this lasting happens. Obedience to his way is how we ultimately win the long game, right? We want to, with endurance, run the race because it's not the fastest. It's the one who gets to the finish line, even if you're slow like me and like Rhonda and like Connor, like a lot of us, (laughs) Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us, for you are good and you love mankind.